Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined by my colleagues and teammates, Ryan Donovan and Ira May. How's it going, y'all? Pretty good. How you doing? Pretty good. Ira, you've been writing a bunch about AI for the blog, and we've been writing a lot about LLMs. And the sort of root of all of this stuff was neural networks, the idea that maybe to train artificial intelligence, we should model it after the brain and these artificial neurons instead of going through the hard work of giving it a million hard-coded rules about how the universe works. And so today, I'm pretty excited. We have a guest, Gaspar Begush, who is an assistant professor at UC Berkeley, working on generative AI and language, and right at the intersection of AI, LLMs, and the actual brain, the neuroscience of all of it. So Gaspar, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for inviting me to the podcast. So before we started, I know you were telling us that uh, you were doing generative AI before it was hip. Give folks just a little bit of background. How did you find yourself at the lab you're at and sort of what you're focused on today? And then maybe tell folks, yeah, a little bit of like, what is that sweet spot that you're trying to work on the intersection of these both technological and biological processes? Yeah, so um, I kind of got into machine learning in an unusual way. Um, I was primarily interested in how language works and um, how we can understand it. And we know language is this you know, unique thing that we humans have, although you know, animals have pretty sophisticated communication systems as well. But uh, it's kind of complex in terms of you know, brain activity. Um, we don't know exactly how it happens, but we understand it on some levels pretty well, right? We know how children acquire it. We have a pretty good understanding of how it develops in history. So I was studying language and I was really interested in how do humans do language and what makes it unique, right? So what is it about our language that is so unique and special compared to other animal communication systems, which are also pretty, pretty interesting. And so I think for the first time in history with deep learning, we have ways to model language in a very similar way as humans learn to speak, right? Human babies. Human babies learn language even before they're born, right? So we listen to sounds of language in the womb while we're in the womb. And um, we know that because babies cry differently based on the language of their parents. <laughs> and, you know, stories that are read during pregnancy are remembered by babies. And so what fascinates me is that for the first time, we can basically combine the understanding of how human babies learn language and build models that are very close to that. So we're building unsupervised generative AI models that learn language from just being immersed into spoken you know, audio uh, sounds, right? Without any text, right? No baby learns from text. And so what the focus of my lab is, is to use deep learning to better understand language, but also use language to better understand deep learning because language is this nice controllable system that is quite interpretable, and we've been studying it for centuries. I mean, there's a lot we don't know about machine learning and deep learning yet, so we can use language to kind of understand where are we different and similar from artificial neural networks and just, you know, kind of inform each other about how our brain works and how artificial neural network works. Hmm. So obviously a lot of the gender AI stuff is based on neural networks, right? Right. I remember I took an AI course in college and they showed me neural networks, and it's this big sum function. Mm -hmm. How do you relate that to how the brain works? Right. 
I mean, the nice thing is that on some levels, the artificial neural networks are inspired by the brain. And the specific architecture that we're using for spoken language are convolutional neural nets, which are most inspired by the brain, um, actually by the vision primarily. And so we're like for cognitive modeling. So where we're trying to build computational models that learn like humans, we're actually not using transformers, which are now, you know, the big boom, the GPT-4 is a transformer and so on. We're using convolutional neural networks. And what we've shown is that using a very similar introspection technique on these artificial neural networks and the brain shows you that the computations can be quite similar in these two, you know, entities, right? So what we do is we record people's brain activity when they listen to language. And there are several ways how to do that, but all of them are basically getting electric activity, a sum of electric activity on your skull, right? That's that's the primary idea behind brain imaging. And then what we do is we take artificial neural networks and take the sum of their artificial activity, right? Not electric activity, but artificial activity when they're listening or when you pass the exact same sound through the artificial neural network. And then so we do a simple summation, which kind of is the same thing as as you do in neuroimaging. And we show that uh, responses to the brain signal are similar, right? So for example, we can catch sound Sound, when you hear sound, uh, first it hits your ears, right? Then it travels through your brainstem onto the cortex, right? So brainstem is where the earliest you can catch uh, your sound, in, basically, when you're doing neuroimaging. And we're, we're doing that. We're like recording brainstem responses to a, a sound of language. And then we're passing that through the neural network. And we're showing that you know, for the first time, we've shown that you don't need any other steps, you know, just raw signals are similar. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no aspects of artificial neural networks that are biologically implausible, right? So the way we train them is called backpropagation. That is implausible biologically, right? But they're similar in at some levels enough to biological neural processing that you can do this really, you know, interesting comparisons and learn, you know, learn about like, you know, we know that the way we hear sounds depends on what your uh, first language exposure was, right? And we show that you know, something similar happens in artificial neural networks as well. They get wired slightly differently based on whether you train them on Spanish or English, right? So uh, we, I think there's a lot of you know, potential to learn from each other. So in other words, to better understand the brain or you know, language with neural networks and vice versa, to better understand neural networks by looking at our actual biological neural computations. Ryan is always very disappointed to know that we're just the sum of some random electrical firings, which really are just the sum of some random hormonal impulses. But, you know, he'll have to sit with that. <laughs> it's really interesting that you talk about, like, learning about the way that neural networks work, you know, in humans and also the way that they work in AI. I feel like I'm a little bit in the, like, lab right now because I have 11-month-old twins who are just learning to talk. And you can sort of see the wheels turning as they connect, you know, like, the gestures and the signs and sort of, you know, they're identical twins, too, so we can do A-B testing, which is really interesting. <laughs> I guess I'd I'd be curious to know like what you've learned that's been surprising like whether that's something that you've learned about the AI side or our side. Mm, that's really really cool question. Yeah, I mean there's so much cool things that are happening as humans are learning language. 
you know, at the beginning, babies basically hear every sound of any possible language, right? But then, you know, at about 11 months, they just start focusing on only those that they hear from their, in their surrounding. I already mentioned language acquisition. I mean, we start hearing language way before we start, you know, seeing complex stuff, right? So if you can imagine, you know, all the stuff we see in the womb, it's pretty, it's pretty complex stuff we see. And so intonation, like, you know, voices going up or down, uh, that's something we definitely pay attention to. Um, in terms of modeling language with artificial neural networks, one thing that I was kind of surprising to me was that the stages in which they acquire language is similar in what kids do, right? For example, we had this study uh, where in, in English, your P, T, and K in English have this puff of air, pa, right, pit, right? Has this H-like puff of air, and English kids have to learn that, right? I mean, in my language, for example, we don't have that. But if you if you add an S before that P, that puff of air is gone, right? So <laughs> pit versus spit, right? Spit has right. no puff of air, okay? And so it, that's a very simple algebraic-like rule, okay, that kids need to learn as they're, you know, faced with English. And they do mistakes, right? So English kids produce this puff of air even when there's an S, right? So they'll say spit, something like that, right? And we've observed that neural nets, as they were, you know, trained on this data, they started doing the same, right? So they had an, a, you know, a nice pronounced developmental stage. It was very, very interesting to kids. One thing that is most surprising maybe to me is that they're super innovative, right? So we're training generative adversarial networks or GANs, and we train them on a few words of English, and they start producing novel words of English that they didn't see here before, <laughs> right? So because they're learning by imagination and imitation, they're basically you, you know, give them eight words and they'll start producing new words of English. And that is really fascinating. Like, for example, we have a network saying start, although we only heard suit and dark and water and a, a few other words, and it never heard start before. And it yet, you know, start is a perfectly good English word. And so they're extremely innovative. And so are we, right? So we are very innovative as well. But one nice thing about spoken language is that we basically have the generative aspect innate, right? So we talked a lot about generative AI. And if you think of vision, we do not have innate generator for vision, right? You know, you, I can ask you to imagine a red apple and you'll do that, but it'll be very difficult for me to access your imagination. But for speech, right? We can speak novel senses, novel words. We can make up words. We can make up sounds. So our articulators are the generative AI principle, right? And so mm. basically we're also modeling how we're moving mounts. So we're trying to build models that learn more and more like humans. So we're trying to get there. We're never going to get there, but we're trying to. So we're adding representations of mouth. So our models started moving mouth instead of just generating sound. And they were also very innovative there as well. So they said words that don't exist, they said sounds that don't exist. So there's a couple of uh, really impressive results that we got. So, uh, but those are, yeah, maybe the main ones I wish. I like how you mentioned, right, this idea that, you know, if I'm thinking of something, it's pretty hard for you to access. Mm -hmm. I know you recently uh, tweeted about some uh, research that did come out of UC Berkeley as well. A really incredible story that was in the New York Times about a woman who had, a, I think, a severe stroke or, you know, lost the ability to communicate, was paralyzed. 
and they were able to study her, you know, brain activity. Right. I guess she had like kind of like a full implant. And then from there, learn what signals mm-hmm. meant what phonemes or sounds or words and give her back the ability to speak, which is truly you feel like we're at this moment of having like a mind computer interface mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that seems so sci-fi. Can you tell us, I guess, yeah, what did you think of that work? Did that connect in any way to yeah. what you're doing? And where does that, you know, leave us in the future? Am I going to be able to imagine something and, and send it your way over a computer? Right. Yeah, so I'm just going to go to teach a class and two or three of the authors on, on that paper were, you know, were in this class in previous years. And I think it just signals how important speech is because, you know, we focus a lot on text. And that's great because most of human knowledge <laughs> is written in text, right? So, so the reason why GPT-4 is so great is because there's text, right? It's trained on text. And there's a lot of human knowledge that is encoded there. But, you know, when you say hello, there's so much information that I, even like if you call somebody and the person says hello and I can identify, you know, many of their social right. properties, like where they're from. Oh, yeah. right. right. So how do you feel that day? Right. Yeah, and yeah. if you transcribe that, it's just a single hello. Right. So speech has so much richness of information that text is losing. And I think in some ways, speech is the new text, right? Because there's much more, I mean, there's so much to be done there. And this study, as I mentioned, we're teaching a class here on speech processing and audio processing. And that study is absolutely fascinating. I mean, it really shows how these new technologies, neural technologies, allow us to basically generate spoken language of patients who lost the ability to speak. And I think this study was amazing. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot of progress in the next years. Um, And, you know, if you think of it, to lose the ability to speak is really a really hard thing, right? So your thought is basically completely intact, right? It's undamaged, but you just cannot execute what you want to say. And, you know, giving people that ability back is going to be really important. And adding large language technology will probably even increase performance and I think this this needs to scale up. So absolutely fabulous study, yes. And my lab is less focused on applied stuff and more on kind of the basic stuff. But we're using some of the same data, right? So it's data when patients need to undergo surgery. And then there are amazing um, neurosurgeons like Eddie Chang at UCSF where you know they record brain responses to, as I mentioned, to spoken language. And that's where we get really rich information about how the brain processes speech. And then why we're doing modeling, right? You might think, you know, modeling is just an exercise. It's not, right? Because with modeling, you can play, right? So if you build an artificial neural network, you know, you can do experiments that you would never be able to do on humans because they would be ethically, you know, horrible. But like, you know, (laughs) right. But but if you have an artificial neural network, you can torture all you want. Right. I mean, yes, in, in a sense, you can you know, turn down some connections, mute some connections. Yeah, and yeah. so, you know, get understanding. Right, right. I'm pretty sure there's a science fiction story about this. Yeah, yeah. You're familiar I, with Rocco's one? Basilisk or... Uh, yeah. yeah. We're, we're getting into the AI ethics territory. Right, right. <laughs> so you talk about modeling language and that, you know, Noam Chomsky has this idea of universal grammar. Do you mm-hmm. think... The, the language modeling that you're doing is, is able to pick that up? Or do you think it's irrelevant to the sort of modeling? That's a really interesting question, actually. So, yes, you're right. I mean, people know linguistics. A lot of what people know about linguistics comes from Chomsky and the idea that, you know, 
somehow we had this you know, pre-engineered brain that is capable of language. And this is a really, really deep and complex and interesting question. Um, so you asked me at the beginning, why, Nick, how did you get into a generative AI? And this is precisely what I was trying to you know, answer is like, how much human specific things do we need for our language to be possible, right? So right. does there need to be something specifically human in our brain or is just just a scaling question, right? Is it just like, are we just so smart that the language emerged? And that's a really deep question. And I think we have to approach it very carefully because, you know, it's easy to be part of camps and say, oh, you know, Chomsky is completely wrong or, you know, Chomsky is completely right. But I think the truth is somewhere in, in the middle. Now, so we're building models that, you know, learn like humans and we're, you know, showing that increasingly stuff emerged there, right? We don't need a lot of human-specific aspects. One nice thing about Transformer, I was a little bit critical before that, but, you know, from the perspective of how humans learn, they're not very realistic, right? So no humans learn from, like, massive amounts of text. But Transformers are really great in showing us what is possible in a neural computation, right? What can emerge? And I think there's a lot that emerges automatically, and we don't need any specific human aspect for language. For example, we have this study where we show that the latest LLMs were not only able to do language well, but they're able to think, you know, to reason, up, to, to analyze language itself. So kind of this metacognitive, you know, reasoning about the reasoning type of ability emerges. And so I think we're getting a lot of evidence that, you know, there's very little, if anything, that is, you know, pre-nade, pre-wired, universal grammar type of thing. But I wouldn't completely rule it out. I mean, that's the big question, right? And if you think of it, we're asking the same question in machine learning as well, which is, are the models that we're seeing now, like GPT-4 or, you know, this neural computation that we know now, is that enough to get the you know super intelligence or uh, AGI, or will we need some extra tweaks in architecture that will get us there? And, and and exactly the same question is being asked in cognitive science and linguistics, right? Are the animals that show many traits of language, but none of them have exact same language as we do? Not even the you know our closest relatives, chimpanzees and bonobos. Are their brain just you know smaller and less powerful? Or do we have some, you know, human-specific things that enable language? And of course, Chomsky will, will think that that is the, the case and we have this special operation that allows syntax and structure and so on. I think a lot of neural networks are showing that there's a lot of structure, there's a lot of stuff you can get for free, in, in other words, right? So just in an artificial neural computation. But I think we should look you know, very carefully at this question because it's very a highly consequential one. And I wouldn't rule out that there is something human-specific, but I, I'm just not seeing a lot of evidence. And I definitely, <laughs> artificial neural networks are right. um, helpful in that respect. Ryan is holding out hope that we're somehow unique <laughs> and different, but... No, no, no. We're brains in a uh, bone mech suit covered in uh, meat armor powered yeah, by electricity. That's all it is, my friend. It's just the number of flops, you know, the number right. of flops you can run on the language. That's pretty much it. So, yeah, you know, there have been a few papers recently exploring the idea of whether or not, you know, these new AIs have consciousness or sentient or mm. their intelligence is the same or different than humans. One was from Microsoft, mm. like you said, proposed that, well, if it has a theory of mind, if it has metacognitive abilities, then it's starting to showcase things that 
once upon a time we would have said are unique to consciousness. Right. And even some of the like biggest players in the field, like, I don't know how you say his name, Yasha Benigna. How do you say that guy's name? Yasha Bengio? Yeah, Yasha Bengio mm-hmm. was recently on a paper that was just sort of saying like, right. any test we can come up with for consciousness, you could design right. an AI to pass it today. That right. doesn't mean that we know what it is, but you know, like I could build you an AI to pass these tests if that's what you want. And I guess the one person on the other side is the guy from Facebook, Jan LeCun, who's sort of saying like, right. look, don't fool yourself. This is just math. And like you said, if we're going to get somewhere really big and important, we have to come up with a different design. Mm-hmm. So where do you fall in that camp? Like, do you think mm-hmm. we're on the right path or do you think we're going to need new approaches, new designs to get the rest of the way? Yeah. yeah, the jury is out there on this one, I think. And nobody really knows. I was most impressed by the magnitude of improvement in performance between GPT 3.5 and GPT 4. The only real model that impresses me is GPT 4 based on, you know, the test that I've been running on and then other people as well, right? So the theory of mind and other concepts. I think we kind of are looking at, at this question in a very human-centric way, right? So <laughs> <laughs> understanding how these models work is so important to me. So what we're seeing is that, okay, some models that we're building are learning like humans or they're getting closer and closer to human performance. And that's great for me because I'm a cognitive modeler. But um, I think we're also seeing that some architectures and models are diverging from how humans would do things, right? So I think that's really important to understand. Like, how are they finding new paths, new ways, new insights, right? I mean, socially, of course, they're biased. These models are biased because they're trained on human data. But in essence, they're not humans. And that's their advantage, right? They are not biased. They're not limited by biology in the way we are. And so I think rather than like, you know, trying to build human-like models or trying to figure out are they, you know, exactly the same consciousness or not, I think we need to understand how they're even different from us or where they're different, right? So how they're becoming different. As I mentioned, transformers, are they're not learning like humans, babies are. And they're seeing stuff that our humans wouldn't necessarily observe. And so I think the, the more interesting question is like, can we understand them? And can we leverage, you know, that understanding so that we get insights that we wouldn't as humans, right? That's can something we control that them, I think is what some people would say is the most important thing. Right, right. I mean, <laughs> when you get into like, you know, once they become so, so smart, it's, it's going to be difficult to evaluate them. Like, how am I able to evaluate them, right? If at some point they become super smart. But also in terms of, you know, consciousness, that's a really loaded question. But if you think of, you know, the brain of a fly is different from our brain for sure. But like how different really architecturally, right? So again, is this a scaling? Pro- I mean, and, we, and we, we think that we have consciousness and flies don't, but, you know, who really knows? But, <laughs> <laughs> but on other animals like, you know, whales or chimpanzees. But yeah, whales have huge brains. What's going on there? I don't know. Exactly. It's not a scaling problem. Well, yeah, there's this other things like brain to size ratio and, and, and we don't right, really right. know a lot about whales. So maybe we'll uncover something. But the thing is that, you know, if consciousness emerges on the way, like if we're able to scale these models to much, much higher, you know, dimensions, why not? And maybe the consciousness will be, you know, different or not. I mean, right. it's really hard to say. I think to be certain to say, you know, I'm in one camp or the other is a little dangerous because... It's really difficult to say. What I say, you know, let's try to understand them, how they're similar, how they're different. I'm just giving you the chance. You know, if you want to get a lot of news coverage, you have to have a hard <laughs> opinion 
I could be completely <laughs> wrong and you just stick with it. Yeah, exactly. And if you're wrong, so, nobody will remember. And if you're right, everyone will give you the accolades. No, I think they have a lot of potential. I'll, I'll say that. And I think it's not impossible. And if, if you need to put me in a camp, I'd be more in, a, in the sci-fi existential risk camp, but, okay. but with one foot like <laughs> on the cautious side. Yeah, right. I mean, there are folks who believe that all matter has consciousness, the, the panpsychism folks. Right. So you never know. Exactly. So I guess, you know, Gaspar, from your perspective in the lab and, you know, as you're thinking about this stuff, when you go out to look for training data, like you mentioned, all the text on the internet is one thing language, you said, is going to become the new text, you know, sound. Mm -hmm. I've read about maybe folks harvesting that from a YouTube video. Mm -hmm. But like, if you really wanted to learn, you know, if you wanted to create universal language or learn different languages or gather all this stuff, how would you go about, you know, getting all the data that you need? Do you have people come into the lab and give you voice mm -hmm. recordings? Do you use audio books? Like, to teach an AI like GPT-4, unfortunately, is a little bit easier maybe than Stack Overflow would like, right? Just go out and right. crawl the whole internet and learn from that. But what do you do when you're looking for language and sound? Yeah, so for language, we have some really dated uh, databases that work well for like limited purposes. I mean, companies have like various different ways to, to get data and there's like a lot of spoken language data. But spoken language is very expensive, right? It, it contains so much more information, but that mm -hmm. means that it's going to be computationally much more expensive, right? So uh, text is a really good low-dimensional representation of our language, but it loses a lot of fun part or like loses a lot of uh, emotions, a lot of, you know, these kind of things. I think one really, you know, next frontier is the pair language with brain data. And that's more difficult to get. So there are non-invasive techniques that are pretty easy to get, like for example, the paper we had in Scientific Report, we you know, just you placed electrodes on people's right. head and, and they can you know, come to your lab and just listen to a lot of sounds. There's like more invasive techniques, but those are nice because they allow you, you know, the study we saw, they allow you to generate spoken language of patients who lost the ability to speak. But I think that creating those databases where we pair spoken language, maybe even vision, with brain responses to those signals is going to be the next big thing. And it'll really allow us to, you know, to do what I initially said, to better understand the brain with neural nets and to build maybe more realistic models of, of the brain in the artificial neural network world. And again, I think the most important thing is to really understand them how they work, right? So mm -hmm. there's this hype about black boxiness of neural networks. Yes, they're difficult. Yes, they're challenging to interpret, but it's not impossible. And part of it is like we were primarily focusing on vision, right? Visual world is super complex. There's like, you know, millions of shapes and objects that you need to distinguish from. Whereas language is a much more controllable space. And I think there's really promising results. And I think we'll be able to understand them more and more if we're interested, right? Industry currently was primarily focused on performance. But now I think a lot of the hype will turn into understanding how these models work and their understanding how they're similar from humans and where they're different and kind of leveraging that difference, right? So I as human can see things and get insights, but I'm limited. And so can I introspect AI and say like, what did you learn here? Tell me what you learned about whales or tell me what did you learn about you know, molecules or you know, the universe that will not give me a definite answer, but like it'll give me important points to, and uh, clues to look for 
And I think that's going to be the really good next thing uh, with a lot of potential for discovery. Sweet. Well, if you need someone to put something deep inside their brain, I guess I'm, I'm, I'll volunteer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that happens only when it's clinically warranted. So don't, don't worry about that. <laughs> All right, everybody. It is that time of the show. We're going to shout out a Lifeboat Badge winner, someone who came on Stack Overflow and helped some folks by spreading some knowledge. Thanks to John Rottenstein, awarded 55 minutes ago, how to delete files older than seven days in Amazon S3. John, we appreciate the answer. You're part of the AWS Collective and you've helped over 40,000 people delete some old files. So good on you, John. As always, I am Ben Popper. I'm the Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. Find me on X at Ben Popper. Email us with questions or suggestions for the show, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find it at stackoverflow.blog. Uh, I am occasionally still on X, so you can DM me there at Arthur Donovan. And I am Ira May. I'm on the editorial team, write for the blog and work on the show notes. And if you want to find me on text-based social media, I am at Ira Maybe, E-I-R-A, Maybe. I'm Gaspar Bigush, uh, assistant professor at UC Berkeley. I'm on X at Bigus Gasper and pretty much every social media probably out there. I have a YouTube channel where you can listen to how language sounds in the brain and in artificial neural networks or how uh, the networks created new words that I'd never heard before. But yeah, those are roughly my presence. Very cool. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening and we will talk to you soon.